Japan is in a seismically active area. There are four major plates that affect this region, the Pacific, Eurasian, Philippine and North American plates. And there are two major subduction zones that could cause major problems if, if movement occurs, the Nankai Trough and the Japan Trench. The Tokyo metropolitan area sits on the Kanto Plain, which is quite susceptible to shaking. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive, a podcast standing on rather shaky ground. I'm Oscar Boyd. In its position straddling the Ring of Fire, Japan is one of the world's most seismically active countries, with earthquakes on a daily basis. Most of these are insignificant, but occasionally one hits that is absolutely devastating. The last of these great quakes to hit the Tokyo region was almost a century ago back in 1923. Now, experts believe that another major quake is due to strike the city imminently. An earthquake that has been named the big one, and the day that it's supposed to strike is known as Day X. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Hurst. You heard him at the beginning of this episode. And he recently wrote an article for The Guardian that described Tokyo's preparations for the big one. Daniel, thank you so very much for joining me today. You're most welcome, Oscar. Daniel, I want to move on to your research of the big one very soon. But first, I want to ask, what experience of earthquakes have you actually had living in Japan? Well, anyone who lives in Japan has an experience of earthquakes. It's a seismically active uh, part of the world. I've lived in Tokyo for the past three and a half years, and I do remember my first earthquake. I'd actually just recently been to one of the disaster training facilities for a bit of a briefing about how to prepare for earthquakes and uh, torrential rain and so forth. So I, I had that fresh in my mind. It was, it was one evening, the alert came on my phone just mm. as the shaking began. It's quite a dramatic uh, alert that uh, interrupts everything, whatever you're doing. And um, I remember um, being a bit startled for the first few seconds of the shakes and then thinking I should grab a cushion and hide under the, under the table next to me. But by the time I'd gotten to the table, um, the earthquake had, had finished. Um, I, I think most people who've moved to Japan or to an earthquake-prone area would remember their first one. Uh, but then as time goes by, you get used to mm. occasional shakes. Describe that feeling to me, the feeling of an earthquake actually hitting. Uh, it, it's quite a jolt to, to the body and I, I guess it's also um, a surprise because when you're in the moment of doing whatever you're doing at the time, you're not thinking that there's this sudden change of circumstances. Um, but I haven't experienced a, a major earthquake in my time here, thankfully. But as you know, I've been researching the big one. The big one. Let's get into that. What is the big one? Well, the big one's usually usually refers to the a major earthquake um, striking Tokyo. Um, Tokyo has experienced major earthquakes before, but in terms of a big earthquake, uh, one is considered to be due. Um, so the Tokyo Metropolitan Government is, is planning on the basis that there's a 70% probability of a major earthquake hitting Tokyo within 30 years. 70%. So incredibly high basically more likely than not a huge earthquake is going to hit Tokyo within the next 30 years that's the estimate and um, I've also heard from um, uh, experts at the uh, University of Tokyo so Professor Naoshi Hirata says that that chance that 70% probability of a, is of a magnitude 7 class earthquake which is a very big one um, and uh, that could be have a devastating impact wow. 
So the earthquake that is forecasted then is comparable in strength to the great Hanshin earthquake that hit Kobe in 1995. Yes, the uh, the great Hanshin uh, earthquake was about 7.3, so that's the same sort of scale that that they'd be they'd be looking at in that sort of situation. Mm. Uh, and given Tokyo is such a built-up urban environment, uh, the impacts would be major. How many people then would be affected if there was a serious earthquake in the Tokyo area? Well, it depends where it hits, but Tokyo contains 13 million people in the metropolitan area. But in the greater Tokyo region, which includes the surrounding, surrounding areas you've mentioned, it comes to about 37 million people. 37 million people, and there is a 70% chance in the next 30 years that one of these earthquakes is likely to hit. That's right, pretty confronting numbers. And then on top of that, you have tourists who are here who pose an extra challenge due to their unfamiliarity with the risk. I mean, how do you feel about that? <laughs> to me, listening to those numbers that, and in researching this podcast, I kind of had waves of nausea thinking that such a big natural disaster could hit very possibly within the next few years in which I'm living here. I'd seen news headlines about this before, but I hadn't really delved into it in great detail. And having looked into it um, and, and look, looking at past disasters, mm. and the sorts of impacts that have occurred, um, it made me feel a bit anxious as well, I have to say. I think for the most part, people try to get on with their daily lives and, and just have that at the back of their minds. But when you look into it, you start to think, okay, what would actually happen? Where would I be? What if I'm out and about? What if I'm in a shopping centre with lots of products on the, on the shelves near me? You know, it, 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 is a, it is something that makes you think what would actually happen uh, and when would it happen? We said earlier that, you know, the first time you experienced an earthquake, by the time it had hit and you were under the table, it was almost already over. And that's the worrying thing about earthquakes unlike typhoons, which you can see coming on, a, on satellite imagery a week in advance and, you know, really get prepared for. Earthquakes are just so sudden. And when they happen, it just feels like the ground beneath you is swaying and shaking and there is nothing you can do. That's right. It's just a sudden uh, event. Um, the best they can do, I think, is uh, half a second of warning or a second of warning on a mobile phone, which is quite impressive when you think about it. But uh, really, there's no time to prepare in the moment. Uh, it's it's something that can happen at any, at any time. To give us an idea of uh, the scale of some of these past earthquakes, um, would you be able to talk us through some of the most recent major ones? Uh, obviously the biggest one to grab international headlines uh, this decade was the 2011 a great East Japan earthquake up in the Tohoku region. That's right. And that earthquake, um, March 11, 2011, uh, that was the most powerful earthquake ever recorded in Japan. It was about magnitude 9, and it struck off the northeast coast, as you know. Um, and about 20,000 people lost their lives in that event. Most of it, or many of those lives, were lost due to the tsunami that followed the earthquake. It also, as you know, triggered the Fukushima um, nuclear reactor meltdowns. Um, and Tokyo also felt um, strong shaking from that event. And um, uh, I guess that would have reminded people living in Tokyo about the risks um, that face this city also. Going further back from that earthquake, the 1995 Great Hanshin um, earthquake disaster, that affected the Kobe area. And it was an early morning magnitude 7.3 quake 
And that killed more than 6,000 people and destroyed many buildings also. And that one, in comparison to the uh, Great East Japan earthquake, most of the deaths were as a result of um, building collapse and the fires that followed. It wasn't the tsunami. So it gives a really clear indication of just how powerful these events are and the destructive capacity they have. That's right. Um, and Tokyo itself, um, the last major, uh, very big earthquake that it, it suffered was in 1923. This was the Great Kantor earthquake, and that was magnitude 7.9. Um, and it, it struck south of Tokyo offshore, and it was around lunchtime, so people's cooking stoves were in operation. And so that uh. also caused a lot of fires in that, in that uh, earthquake. Um, I think one eyewitness who I had seen reported in one of the news stories from the time described it as um, hell on earth. That disaster in Tokyo and surrounding, surrounding regions caused a combined death and injury toll of about 105,000. So one would hope that um, Tokyo has learnt from that and has improved its, um, certainly its building standards and um, general awareness. But that gives a sense um, of the kind of impacts that these, that these events can have. I want to move on and ask a bit about your research. Um, how did you go about researching the big one and the preparations for it. Yes, yeah, so I was commissioned to look into the big one as part of the Guardian's uh, Tokyo Week. They, they uh, published a series of articles all about issues to do with Tokyo and um, its place in the world mm. ahead of the Olympics. And um, looking into the issue of how it was preparing for this major earthquake, um, I spoke to the Tokyo Metropolitan Government. Um, I attended a um, urban resilience forum that the, the Tokyo Metropolitan Government actually hosted, where basically disaster planners from around the world um, came to Tokyo to, to share their experiences with each other and talk to the Tokyo Metropolitan Government and also other governments, including from Christchurch in New Zealand and other earthquake and disaster-prone regions. So. I learned a lot from the presentations that they made there. I also spoke separately to people who helped train people in Tokyo to be prepared for disasters. Um, and I looked through the, the handbook that's distributed to Tokyo residents and other planning documents like that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, spoke to seismologists also about the risk. So tell me about uh, that international forum. Did you get the sense from that that uh, Tokyo and Japan is better prepared than some of its international counterparts or were there lots of lessons to be learned? I got the sense that Tokyo was very well prepared and that uh, other uh, experts from other countries respect Japan's experience in this regard. I guess different cities have different, um, different dynamics, different uh, elements that they have to prepare for. Uh, but Tokyo is respected for, or Japan more generally is respected for its experience of earthquakes and what it's learnt from those past disasters. But that's not to say there aren't things that can be learnt. Uh, one of the striking uh, figures that I heard uh, at, that, at that conference was that Tokyo still has quite a large number of uh, low-set wooden homes. So 
there is about 13,000 hectares of concentrated wooden houses, and that's about 7% of Tokyo metropolitan area. Those zones are particularly at risk of fire straight mm. after an earthquake. And I assume are slightly older as well, so you might not have as secure modern building foundations either. That's right. It's a combination of the two. The building standards aren't, aren't to modern standards, and also they're more susceptible to fire. So when you talked to these seismologists and you went to this conference, did you get a sense of how worried people from the government um, experts in this field actually are about the big one? I have to say that officials here try to project a sense of calm, project a sense of we've got this under control. I mean, if anywhere's prepared for this major earthquake, it's, it's Tokyo. But in terms of officials and also the general public, the big problem with planning for an event like this is just the uncertainty about when it would hit, about where it would hit, about what people would be doing at the time, and just there are always unexpected elements that that you'd have to deal with in the moment as opposed to planning ahead for it. With that in mind, what kind of preparations have the government um, tried to make? There are some basic things that can be done, and then there are moving parts that are a bit harder to, to, to deal with. Building standards um, are a, na a national issue in Japan mm -hmm. and they've been improved after each major national disaster. So in terms of getting the buildings um, to be able to withstand earthquakes, that, that's, a, that's a fundamental thing that can be done to, to basically start with a better chance of withstanding the earthquake. So when the ground is actually shaking, you have, for example, the buildings that will sway from side to side as opposed to immediately collapsing due to the ground shaking. That's right. And in terms of the large skyscrapers, um, they're able to put in place uh, quite advanced technology that, uh, you know, for example, these devices called dampers, uh, which swing counter to the swaying of the building. And that's designed to act as a bit of a, a shock absorber. Mm -hmm. And so going back to the Great East Japan earthquake, uh, I think there was footage that um, many people would have seen of buildings in the Shinjuku area um, moving quite dramatically almost as if they're swaying in the breeze uh, backwards and forwards and that's exactly what they were designed to do they were designed to be able to withstand the shock of the of the earthquake um, and it, it applies those building standards apply to smaller buildings as well and um, I think it's interesting that in terms of learning from past experiences most of the buildings that were destroyed in the 1995 Corbett earthquake um, were built before the tougher building standards were introduced in 1981. Mm -hmm. So about three quarters of the newer buildings had no damage or very minor damage. So that goes to show that the, the improvement of building standards um, does make a big difference. Then you have um, the efforts that are needed so that people prepare, so that households are, are prepared and on an individual level. Mm -hmm. So those are things like encouraging residents to ensure their furniture is braced to the wall so that a, a big bookshelf wouldn't fall down onto someone in, in, in the event of a sudden earthquake. It's also about urging people to have uh, adequate food supplies and water supplies at home, having not, not always running down the pantry to the bottom, but having a few extra days of supplies. It was interesting, uh, pre-Typhoon Hagabis, we did see Tokyo-wide the uh, clearing of shelves um, at supermarkets, at convenience stores, all these places where it kind of did give a 
feeling that people weren't that well prepared for a sudden disaster. I mean, Typhoon Hagabis, there was enough lead up that people could stock up. But the fact that so many shelves were cleared immediately beforehand suggests that maybe people don't have food. That did surprise me as well, that because when we talk about stockpiling in, in this context, it's not, it's not like there's a bunch of food put aside, you know, in a locked box in your house for an emergency, break glass in case of emergency. It's more about ensuring that there's always an extra few days of supplies of food and bottled water and so on. So what is likely to happen in the case of day X, the day a big, big earthquake hits Tokyo? Chaos. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean to be the, you know talking doom and gloom but um that day x um there's actually a manga included in the tokyo um manual that's distributed distributed to residents and that manga describes includes pictures of destruction trains um derailed uh rubble everywhere people trapped in buildings um that seems like quite a dramatic um portrayal uh, but again, it comes back to complacency. The authorities are trying to make sure people aren't thinking it'll all be okay. It's hard to it's hard to say exactly what would happen, but um, there would be impacts on buildings. Buildings would be would be shaking. People would be um, some people would be hurt by falling objects for sure. Um, depending on, I, I imagine that people out and about would be at higher risk than people at home if they have their homes and businesses prepared. Um, There would be difficulty, I think, with tourists and people who aren't in their home area that they don't have a base to go to and they don't Mm. have a frame of reference for this. As I've mentioned in the previous earthquakes, fire is a big issue that happens after earthquakes and so that's an underappreciated risk. Um, And depending on where an earthquake would strike, tsunami is a a risk, of course. And what kind of scenarios have uh, Tokyo or Japan modelled for this kind of event? Well, they've modelled various scenarios, um, but the the most dramatic scenario that the Tokyo officials were working on was the one that was a 7.3 magnitude earthquake north of Tokyo Bay, and that's the one that projects 9,700 deaths. But it's really hard to know, and I can imagine that the death toll may be, may be higher than that, and that um, uh, the you know, you can't predict the impact to uh, essential public services, water and gas, and the impacts on transportation and just people being stuck in the one place for an extended period of time. It's interesting that they're working off a 7.3 magnitude model when in recent living history with the 2011 earthquake, we did see one that was magnitude 9, which is obviously a really extraordinary event, really unusual quite rare but it does prove that more powerful earthquakes can happen and can hit japan in a very disastrous way do they you know do they have a fallback plan for something that would be much bigger than a 7.3 well i'm sure they've modeled um, more devastating versions of that of that earthquake Um, but in terms of their public statements that that was the one that they put forward but a lot of the preparations are, are essentially the same really if it's a bigger earthquake it doesn't it doesn't take away the need for people to um, have their homes in in working order and have you know furniture safe and have um, be aware of where their their evacuation center is their closest evacuation 
site, it doesn't take away the need for those other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously the death toll and injury toll and general chaos would be higher. And where would they coordinate um, a response to this disaster from? Would it be from the National Diet or the Prime Minister's office or do they have some kind of dedicated place? In the event of a major earthquake hitting Tokyo, the emergency response would be coordinated um, from the Tokyo Rinkai Disaster Prevention Park. And that, that's a 13-hectare site just northwest of Tokyo Bay. Uh, it features a helipad and a runway. And it's actually open to visitors in regular times when there's not a disaster. So if people are interested in how Tokyo would respond to a disaster, they can go to that park and uh, find out more. But a lot of the, a lot of the um, individual level response or community level response really is decentralised because people have to have to um, be aware of their own neighbourhood. And you can imagine that um, the authorities wouldn't have awareness of exactly what's going on in every street and every corner. In Corbet, in that disaster, a majority of rescues, people who were helped in, in, in a difficult situation, the majority of those rescues were not done by officials or authorities. They were done by other um, residents and other people in the community. So that just underlines the need for people to be ready to help their neighbours. Um, not everything can actually be coordinated by the authorities and by emergency responders. There aren't enough. In, in one of these scenarios, we could be seeing uh, up to five million people um, stranded the next day. Um, but one of the things government is urging companies to do is stockpile food and schools to stockpile food to make sure that their staff could actually just live in the office for a few days while the city calms and um, kind of recollects itself. That's right. I think, I think one of the issues is they don't want people moving unnecessarily in the days after a major disaster because you can imagine that roads might be cut off, transport networks might be down and dangers could be continuing. So the fewer people are moving around or trying to get between places, the better. So if people are safe at home, um, they, they're encouraged to stay there. Um, if, if they're at the office, um, offices or businesses are also encouraged to have supplies on hand, uh, adequate supplies for their employees so that if there is a disaster and they are stuck there, they can, they can stay there. Um, and those, I mean, th- that figure of about 5 million people stranded, that's an estimate um, that relates to um, an earthquake uh, of 7.3 hitting just north of Tokyo Bay. And that even though people would, they would be encouraging people to stay where they are if they are in a safe place, there would be a peak of about 3.4 million evacuees on the day after the disaster. So the scale is really hard to comprehend. And another thing you mentioned in your article, which I hadn't realised, was the uh, daily five o'clock jingles that go off around the city, which I assumed was a hangover from farming days when people would be called back in from the fields. But you revealed in your article quite a different explanation for that. Well, certainly those jingles that are played, um, I'm most familiar with the 5pm one because it sort of feels to me like it's the end of the day, it's, it's become quite a nice ritual to hear that, even, <laughs> though, uh, even though work hours aren't, aren't so neat anymore. But beyond that, that jingle that's played each day 
is part of um, the authorities testing the um, broadcast system, the, the loudspeaker system that would be used in the case of an emergency. So getting messages out to people when communication networks are down or if the mobile phones aren't working, those same loudspeakers which are dotted around schools and parks generally, those would be used to, dis to disseminate information. And that jingle is part of the test that, to ensure that it's working and in good operation. So when I was researching this podcast, I took a look at the um, the guide distributed by the Tokyo Metropolitan Government, and it is you know it's a very comprehensive 388 page manual. It's in English, it's obviously in Japanese, it's on other languages as well. And if you're listening to this podcast, I would recommend looking at it. But again, I got this sense of nausea when you see sections which are like you know, titled "Preparing" or what was it? What was the exact phrase? "Confronting Death." post-event accepting death accepting death yeah, yeah you know it's, it's really um hard hitting and quite graphic i think with that one there's a cartoon of a man just facing utter devastation around him um but i wonder having done this research looking into this article um how has it affected your view of earthquakes and living in tokyo well, it's made me a lot more concerned about it, I have to say. I mean, not, not to the point of, of panic. I wouldn't want people to be out there running, running around panicking about it. They just need, need to be prepared. It's made me more aware of, of exactly what might happen in such a disaster, and it's made me more concerned about making sure the house is, um, is safe and making sure that have ways to communicate and so on and plans ahead. It's no longer such a back of mind thing for me. Uh, it's something that everyone needs to prepare for if they live in Tokyo. And what is the best way to prepare or the best resources to consult? Well, I found that, as you say, that guide that's distributed by Tokyo Metropolitan Government be quite useful, the, the disaster handbook, um, because it's, it has um, section headings that are very useful. You can, about preparing your home and about the things that you can install, what you need to have on hand, um, you know, in your house, um, the stockpiling of goods and so on. I found that very useful. I'd also recommend that people download one of the one of the number of emergency apps on their phone that would not only connect them to information about disasters but also provide emergency alerts. And those those apps have increasingly been distributed in in multiple languages um, because there are more and more people from international backgrounds living in Japan. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on this episode of Deep Dive. You're welcome, Oscar. It's a pleasure. That was Daniel Hurst, and you can find a link to his excellent piece for The Guardian in the episode notes, alongside links to the Tokyo Metropolitan Government's Disaster Preparedness Handbook and useful smartphone apps for when disaster strikes. If you're ever caught out in a natural disaster in Tokyo or Japan, you can also find real-time information and advice at the Japan Times' disaster portal at disaster.japantimes.co.jp. My colleagues did some fantastic work there during the recent Typhoon Hagibis. Now for something completely different, I'm very happy to announce that today is Deep Dive's first birthday. And I really want to say thank you to all our listeners for their support, to all our contributors for their hard work creating this podcast, 
and to everyone at the Japan Times who's helped make this podcast possible. To help us celebrate, I've now got Sean McKenna in the studio. You might remember him from the episode we did when we climbed Mount Fuji together. Hi, Oscar. Congratulations. Thank you, Sean. You have a bit of a cold. This seems to be always the case when you're in the studio. <laughs> I climb a mountain and, uh, and I get a cold. You're going to have to get a scarf. Yeah. <laughs> so as an added bonus, we thought we'd uh, turn the tables. Mm-hmm. And in the great tradition of sitcoms that have run out of ideas, we thought we'd do a recap special. Um, I'd like to ask a serious question to start. Yes. You used to have a co-host. I think his name was Corey something. What happened to him? The great American Corey Baird, he was with us for about four episodes. He was pretty fundamental in getting this podcast up and running. And then he left us to go and study a fantastic sounding PhD in the field of economics at the University of Maryland and also to marry his fiance, oh. who lives in New York. Okay. And he left you to do this on your own. To steer the great deep dive podcast ship (laughs) solo into the void. Cool. And you've had a few um, like highlights in terms of the people you've interviewed, uh, especially in those first days. Was Corey around for your interview with the astronaut? He was around, but I don't think he joined us for that one. That was with um, Japan's second ever female astronaut who spent several weeks, I believe it was, on the International Space Station. Her name was Naoko Yamazaki. You know, when I was on board the space shuttle, I was so excited. No fear at all. Of course, I was ready for the accident just in case. And in tradition, we wrote a will before going to space. And she was coming in for an interview with another one of our writers who was actually uh, writing a long feature piece about her and very kindly took 10 minutes out of her time to come on Deep Dive. Uh, that was one of the yeah, early successes in terms of interviews. It was really great talking to her. It was definitely a good get. You've gotten a few good gets over the good uh, get. <laughs> past year. Um, I remember there was uh, Pat Kun. Pat Kun, yes, the famous comedian who came in um, with Andrew McCurdy, another of our staff writers. And Pat Kun had spent the last six months, I believe it was, coaching Andrew to become a man's eye comedian. And Andrew had done a couple of performances in the office. He'd done his first live performance on stage. And those two came in together and had a really interesting and quite funny chat, I think, about the art of man's eye comedy. Yeah, he was, he was really, um, it was interesting to hear his take on Japanese humor versus Western humor. Yeah, and he was so evocative as he spoke. Um, he's so in the world of man's eye comedy in the west we have a lot of really exaggerated comedy you know think of jim carrey it's purely visual hilarious and when we get on stage as foreign comedians trying our hand at japanese comedy we think about being exaggerated like that and it's sort of a bad idea because our very presence is exaggerated and to hear his perspective and opinion and the depth of his knowledge on joke writing in japanese was fascinating for someone who still doesn't speak Japanese nearly as well as they want. Yeah. And it also explains why a lot of my jokes don't land with my (laughs) Japanese friends. Um, Also, there's been some other really big interviews. What are some of your favorites? So one of my favorites still was the interview we did with the first blind sailor to cross the Pacific. His name was Hiro Iwamoto. A typhoon started coming, and, uh, and the sixth day we had a collision with the whale. In the seven in the morning, uh, I heard boom, boom, 
boom. And this is one of those ones where one day in the Japan Times office, we have a very open uh, contact system. Anyone can write in if they so desire. Okay. And we got a press release saying this guy, Hiro Iwamoto, was about to finish up his sale and would we like to interview him? And I thought this sounds like a fantastic opportunity for a really, really good interview with someone who's done something very inspiring. And I think that was the main takeaway from that episode was just how much difficulty he'd been through in his journey and how he'd overcome that to sail this vast, vast ocean. And your most recent interview, of course, was with uh, Chris Broad and Sharla in Japan from uh, YouTube, right? Yes, that was last week's episode. Uh, again, two lovely characters who came into the Japan Times offices and spent an hour of their time with us um, talking about their lives as professional YouTubers and how they got um, from their early origins in distant Tohoku um, to becoming some of the most influential people in the English language sphere talking about Japan. And you did a survey recently um, asking listeners, you know, what kind of episodes they liked. Um, what did they have to say? So you will be delighted to know. Delighted to know. that More think, Sean? <laughs> yeah, pretty <laughs> much. I think by far, um, in a way, the most popular episode so far is the one in which we climbed Mount Fuji together. Well, I should hope so. I put <laughs> myself through hell to do it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was probably partly due to the punishment you inflicted upon yourself. <laughs> but also the experiential nature of that one. That one I really, really enjoyed making because uh, we m managed to bring to life that climb quite well, I think. Yeah, we're about to leave the ninth station. It's raining and it's windy. It sounds terrible. Oh my gosh, it looks worse. We did two months of training and various practice climbs on the lead up to that, and so had recordings from that. We recorded the entire day as we went about our climb. Um, you know, from the Shinkansen, from Tokyo, all the way to Shinfuji Station. Your I first remember. reactions. <laughs> <laughs> your first reactions, uh, getting off the bus and seeing Mount Fuji for the first time and the steep, black, rocky slope. Um, and then the absolute disastrous weather <laughs> that befell us as we tried to leave for the summit in the morning and ultimately the rainbow we were treated to at the top um so from the survey yeah that seemed to really resonate with listeners and um yeah just as a as a follow-up to that um so i want uh listeners to know that i have kept up with hiking um <laughs> i tried to redo some of the uh mountains that kind of got me down the first time I, I tried. Uh, that's Takao and Mitake. But you ended up climbing Fuji again for a second <laughs> time. Yes, yes. I've now said you done wouldn't it do it. <laughs> seven times. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll ever be able to separate myself from that mountain. There's always someone who wants to climb it who I believe is worth taking up. <laughs> that's cool. Another thing is a little look behind the scenes of the uh, Mount Fuji podcast. Mm. Um, I let loose two F-bombs during that podcast, which ended up becoming a topic of uh, conversation in the office before the podcast was <laughs> released. Um, have there been any uh, swear words on the podcast since? I don't think there have. Should we do some? 
<laughs> no, I don't think we should, <laughs> judging by the conversation we had last time. Uh, but I thought that was really interesting because, I mean, we kind of were struggling to think, you know, do we kind of like want to have the swear words in the podcast? They came out naturally. Mm. Um, I'm not much of a swearer, but, you know, in the moment it kind of just slipped. Well, I don't think they were, they weren't used to kind of denigrate anyone or anything like that. I think they were used in uh, positive reinforcement of the uh, story we were telling. And yeah, there was some risky language in there, but that was all part of the climb and the kind of conversations you end up having when you are stressed but there were 3,000 and a bit meters um, on top of a giant hill in a rain and windstorm. Yeah, there was um, that moment where I kind of came into the office thinking I would have to like record a bunch of alternatives. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> sitting there going, I'll just say, bonk, uh, crud. <laughs> but luckily we didn't have to go with any like goose honks in the end. So that was cool. Yeah. Speaking of experiential pods, um, mm. you actually did a week where you interned at Inua, right? The restaurant in Tokyo. I really liked that one. I think that was your first kind of foray into doing something outside of the Japan Times uh, offices. Yeah, so I ended up interning at Inua um, for a week during Golden Week last year, but that actually followed the podcast I made with them. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so I'd eaten at that restaurant and absolutely loved the meal. And following the meal, I ended up talking to head chef Thomas Frabel. And uh-huh. it was actually before the uh, podcast had even started. I said, look, we're starting this project. I'd love to have you on. And he very kindly agreed to do it. And yes, invited me to his restaurant again. And we sat down on this grand, grand table. And that was, again, one of my favorite interviews I've done so far. I think partly because I'm a bit of a foodie myself. And listening to him talk just made me drool. It definitely activated some <laughs> animal part of my brain, which I think it is normally switched off. Um, <laughs> but also what I really liked about that restaurant and his attitude was that he's so open and let me go around and interview all his staff. My name is Chloe Villevier. I'm a chef de partie at Inua. I'm currently working on a plum leather dish. Plum leather? <laughs> So it's a plum juice dehydrated in a flat. He's preparing a dish based on deer tongue. So I will be grilling the deer tongue for tonight, curing them and prepping them, and then preparing all the herbs that require the dish. He let me through all the different kitchens, the test kitchen, the main kitchen. And to me, it was such an interesting learning experience. Yeah, after I finished it, I got back in touch and said hey, I don't have any plans for Golden Week. I've completely forgotten to book a holiday and now everything's (laughs) too expensive. Do you mind if I come in and work for you? And he said, do you have any experience in a restaurant? I said, absolutely not. And he said, okay, good luck. (laughs) What kind of things did you do? All sorts. Um, I mean, there was a fair amount of dishwashing, but I I went in expecting to do that. But really, it was very, very hands-on and they've got a fantastic team there who are really welcoming, really open and let me actually helped prepare dishes that were going to be served to customers that evening. Obviously, there was a ton of oversight. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to do anything on my own. <laughs> it's the kind of restaurant where you, uh, I mean, it's so high quality, you can't risk uh, inexperienced intern ruining everything. Right. right. Um, but yeah, it was a really interesting learning experience and I'll gladly go back and work there sometime in the future. Sure. 
Sean, you've given me some kind of fluorescent yellow drink to try and get me through my cold. And the result of that so far is that my stomach is now going absolutely crazy. I'm trying to get you to swear. <laughs> With the survey, um, did the listeners who answer, um, answered the survey offer up any constructive criticism? or? Yeah, there's some really good constructive criticism. Um, and I really appreciate all those who took the time to fill out that survey because it's really useful to me and the rest of the Deep Dive team to get a better idea of what our listeners want. If you still want to fill out that survey, you can find it still at jtimes.jp slash dd. Okay. Um, and yeah, one of the biggest topics to come out of it was the topic of balance. Okay. Um, you know, trying to strike the right tone between um, our audiences who live here and might know Japan incredibly well in a lot of detail and know a ton of stuff about the topics we're talking about, but also um, providing a greater level of accessibility for those people who don't know Japan so well, aren't so familiar with the country and aren't so familiar with the topics we're talking about. Right. And I think that's what Deep Dive always tries to do. Most episodes start off by setting out the topic, giving that background, giving that context, and then we try and go deeper and deeper and deeper from there to tell a hopefully interesting, hopefully engaging, hopefully educating story. Well, on that, um, so you've done a lot of stories about news topics. So obviously people who live here are kind of following um, the news and the people overseas, they might kind of dip in and out of the news. It's kind of a similar problem that they, or challenge that the newspaper also faces in trying to balance these audiences. Mm -hmm. um, and you've done a lot of topical podcasts recently. So there was the enthronement one and there was one on the Tokyo riots from uh, the past. Um, what have you kind of gone out of those podcasts for me, the real delight about Deep Dive is every week I also get to learn about all these topics. Okay. Um, I am not a Japan expert by any means, um, but through working with our journalists, working with the freelance contributors who've come on this podcast, I get to learn about this story. We get to work out the best way to tell the story, which has normally been written in, as in an article form, um, and tell it in a way that is accessible. And I think that's what I've really enjoyed learning about this podcast the okay. enthronement ones yeah a really good example of that um i had no idea about the customs that surrounded the enthronement ceremony and then we had sakura who'd done um a lot of research and had been following the imperial family here in japan she came on and and um put out an excellent podcast which really went into the details of the enthronement ceremony who was there what kind of other events um surrounded the ceremony and really what the enthronement of a new emperor means for japan what I found really interesting about that podcast was um, when she started talking about the security. Mm. Uh, so we noticed an increased police presence around um, downtown Tokyo or central Tokyo uh, near the palace. And um, I didn't realize that that was because of the previous enthronement ceremony and kind of like leftist threats that were kind of being put towards the emperor at that time or, or concerns of threats yeah well, well sakura makes that point in the uh podcast the debate grew so heated that when it came to the issue of carrying the takamikura the throne from kyoto to tokyo in time for the emperor emeritus akihito's coronation the self-defense force had to make a secret mission of it because they were worried the, they would be attacked and the, the throne would be destroyed. Coming back to the uh, constructive feedback point, I think one of the other things 
um, that was brought up is uh, the Tokyo-centric nature of this podcast. And I personally hope to do a ton more stuff that is regional-based in the future. Uh, me and one of my colleagues have just been down to Iki Island to the north of Fukuoka. Why there? Um, they've just declared a climate emergency. Oh. Um, so we wanted to find out what that means. And the other one that did come up, and I think is completely fair, is um, the skew towards male voices on this podcast. Ah, yeah. Um, and it's very easy. You know, this episode is all male presenters, and I'm very conscious of it. I do want to get more diverse voices right. on this podcast in the future. Yeah, yeah. In this case, I'm just the only sucker willing to get up <laughs> at 6 a.m. to come in and record on the podcast. This. Yeah, thank you again for doing this. Cool. And finally, big burning question. Yeah. Uh, what's the meaning of Potsukare-sama? That's become a little bit of a catchphrase for you. Yeah, so it's the sign-out phrase, and I've actually got criticism on this from <laughs> the feedback survey as well, because I think a lot of people think I'm just saying Otsukare-sama, um, <laughs> and Otsukare-sama, one of the definitions of it is that, you know, you're saying thank you for your hard work, and people have said to me, you know, it, it shouldn't be hard work listening to your podcast. Uh, so why are you saying Otsukare Summer at the end? Um, but yes, it is a terrible portmanteau of podcast, pod, and Otsukare Summer to make Podskare Summer. And I came up with this in an episode, I think it was the episode of on whaling, episode number 19. Okay. Um, because in a previous episode with that the guest on the whaling podcast, Sakura Murakami, I'd made a pun and she'd roasted me on Twitter about right. it. Um, <laughs> I think it was a pun about Rewa, the new Rewa era. era. And um, so after that roasting, I thought I need to have a better pun. Yeah. And by better, I mean much worse <laughs> <laughs> um, for the next podcast. And that one was burning a hole in my mental pocket for a couple of months until I had another opportunity to interview Sakura. And that was when it was first said. The way we sign off Deep Dive is now Potskarisama. Well, thank you very much, Oscar. It was nice uh, kind of being on this journey with you for the past year and all the best for the uh, years to come. Well, thank you for taking the time to interview me and to all our listeners thank you very much for listening to this episode of Deep Dive you can find many more episodes just like this one on all major podcasting services rate us subscribe to us review us and tweet us I can be found at OMH Boyd the Japan Times Deep Dive account can be found at Japan Deep Dive thanks for listening and as always Patsukari-sama Patsukari-sama Patsukari-sama